Please open your Bibles to Job chapter 38. The last few weeks we've been traveling at high altitude with regards to God's sovereignty. And our study this morning brings us a little lower. My former mentor used to say, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. And I may meddle in some of your lives this morning. And I may call on people like Shanton and Peter. So, <laughs> Nevertheless, we've gone from the general overview of God's sovereignty. And if you don't know what that is, it's God's absolute control and authority over all things, whether they are created or not. If you weren't here for Sermon 1, I indicated that God calls things into being from things which do not exist. That is because he alone has authority and power to create out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. So we've gone from that general view of God's authority and sovereignty to look at certain special, specific elements of his sovereignty over nature, which was last week, Psalm 93, I believe. This morning we will consider how it relates to the living, both creatures and people. Why this sermon? Why this series of sermons on God's sovereignty? Well, because in times of crisis... In times of need, in times of affliction, the comfort and consolation for the child of God is God's power, authority, and control, and decree over all things. I don't know what you hold on to when you are in difficulty, but I am comforted and consoled by the fact that it doesn't matter how bad it is, it doesn't matter if it's not panning out, God is in control. This is the Mount Everest of doctrines. I know that uh, there are certain key doctrines which are heels to die on. This discussion of God's sovereignty drives fear into the hearts of sinful men and women and deepens faith in the heart of those who are His. As we are facing a difficult period in history, as somebody said this morning, It's interesting to see how the church has grown in the midst of persecution. We see that in the Bible. Whenever God brings persecution, the church grows. It's his means to establish and further grow his church. As we are facing the reality that there are those of us who may die of COVID, there are those of us who may be infected or affected by COVID, we can be comforted that God alone is on His throne. And having been enthroned, He alone does what He pleases to do in this world. Another reason why we need to focus on God's sovereignty is because hardship, affliction, and crisis, it betrays our hearts. It shows us for what we truly are. It shows us what the hidden convictions are in our hearts. It shows what we really believe about God. 
In times of crisis, we say, where was God in the middle of my trouble? Where was God in the midst of my hardship? Why was not God there in my suffering? Why did God not, God not stop my hurt? As if suffering and hardship is somehow outside of the control of God. We will see a man that starts to think like that this morning. And God has an interesting response to him. We look at natural catastrophes. Tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes. How can God God be in that? How can God cause things like that? How can God allow these things? Is what we say. By these we reveal that we have relegated suffering, hardship, and natural catastrophes as something that exists outside of the realm of God's authority, power, and control. As if he cannot bring it to, to pass. The reality is, believers, God's sovereignty is the answer to all of those knowing questions. However, this morning, as we venture into the most emotionally laden aspect of God's sovereignty... While many of us will say, yes, I believe in God's sovereignty, the challenge comes in when we veer into the area of human will. The particulars of human life, we seem to be hesitant to acknowledge God's sovereignty over those things. There may be various reasons, such as ignorance. Some of us have not been exposed to this doctrine of God's sovereignty. Or sometimes there are those of us who are trying to protect God's holiness, saying, well, I can't say that God is sovereign over that situation because a holy God would not allow something like that. Some of us who have never been exposed to this, this is like fresh bacon. Have you ever had bacon that's just been cooked properly? You know, when the outer bits is just a bit crispy, it's nice and chewy, right? You want that. And so you can chew on that bacon for a long period of time because, yeah, I love bacon. But then there are those who are probably not saved who don't like bacon at all. They just don't like the taste and the texture and cannot get it down. Yeah, who are these people? This doctrine is to the church of Jesus Christ just like that. There are those of us who love it, who who marvel at God's sovereignty, and there are those of us who choke on it. It It's not possible. There is personal tension when it comes to this subject. Why? Because we cannot fully comprehend how believers could even dare to acknowledge that God, a holy, loving, sovereign God, could somehow bring about affliction, suffering, pain, and death. What kind of God would do that? So in our efforts to defend God, we, we refuse to acknowledge certain attributes, certain perfections, certain aspects of His sovereignty. For instance, in Arminianism, believers try to protect the will of man... But they relegate 
the sovereignty of God to nothing more than a response to man. Why do I say that? Somehow we think that allowing for human freedom, we protect God from accusation. Because there are certain people who choose God and certain people who don't choose God. And in that scenario, you can say, well, they are to blame because they didn't choose God. And they, well, they chose God, so God is justified. We try to protect God in that. But that's not the substance of the argument. At the heart of this theological conviction is that man must be free. That's the kernel. Doesn't matter what you say after that. The substance of Arminianism is that man must be free. He alone must have the choice. For if man is not free and God chooses, then God is unjust. Arminians believe that God, who knows all things, Seize down the annuals of time, what you will choose, and the response to your choice by choosing you. And therefore, he does not determine all things, but is over all things. Does that make sense? Does not. You cannot have a God who is in all things, over all things, and controls all things, but does not have authority over our choices. And I will point that out to you in an illustration later on. Another element which relates to this idea is that if God causes all things, then man is not free and therefore cannot be responsible for his sinful actions. We like the term, God allows things to happen because we somehow think we protect God when we use that term. Do you know what the Bible says about God? In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God causes all things. Causes. Not allows. He does. In Psalm 133 and in Psalm 145, there's a lot of Psalms on this issue that says that God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he chooses to do. Not allows whatever... To take place. But he does. He's active in what he does. The Bible presents God to be absolutely authoritatively sovereign over all things. This includes creaturely actions and activity and people's actions and activity. He's sovereign over that. And I'll explain what I mean by being sovereign over that. While God doesn't cause the sin, he uses the event in line with his will to bring about a good end. I know that's hard to understand, but hang in there. We'll get to that in a moment's time. There's two main points that I have this morning. Number one, God is sovereign over his creatures. His absolute control over every living beast, where it's a critter, or a weird creature. I wanted to use a C. God is sovereign over people. Whether they act like puppies or they act like beasts. He's sovereign over all people. And that's the two points I'm going to make to you with you this morning. Number one, God is 
God's sovereignty is seen in his controlling authority over his creatures. How can we discover God's sovereignty over creatures? Well, generally speaking, if God is sovereign over all things, then there is no creature exempt from that. This is one of the most beautiful things that I discovered in the Word of God, is to see how God moves amongst critters, creatures. Listen to Psalm 135. You don't have to turn there. Stay in, in Job because we'll get there in a moment's time. Psalm 135 verse 6. The text literally reads, All that Yahweh delights in, he does in the earth, in the seas, and in the deeps. Now that word, in the earth, is literally on the earth. It can legitimately be translated on the earth, even though it's in um, the, the Hebrews when they wrote certain words like that, when it's in a certain context or in a certain uh, construction, in can be on, translated on. Now that's not true in English, in is in and on is on. But in Hebrew, you can get away with that. And so it says that Yahweh delights in all that he does in earth or on earth. What does that relate to? What dwells on the earth? Creatures, both men and beasts. So he does what he pleases in all that dwells on the earth. And then it says, in the seas and in the deeps, what dwells in the sea? Well, fish, right? What dwells dwells in the deeps? What? Plankton. (laughs) There are creepy creatures down in the deep deeps. Have you ever seen these um, National Geographic programs where they use this um, thing that goes down deep where men cannot dwell? And there are ugly beasts down there. There's this thing that's got this antenna to attract his his prey and his mouth is weird looking. It looks like like a, a clamp. Anyway, That is the beasts that God is talking about. The things that is not visible to us, that we don't know about. He says he does what he pleases in all of those things. That means he's over all those things. Wherever there is life, God reigns. Later on in verse 5, it says that Yahweh is great. And that's an adjective. An adjective can be used in a variety of different ways, but that great doesn't mean, oh, oh, this is great, this is good. No. Yeah, it means that he is above everything. He's, he's the superlative. He's the one who stands out above everything. There is no one above him or greater than him. There is nothing that rises above his lordship or control. That's the use there of great. Because of this reality, because no one is above him and everything is under him, he therefore reserves the right to do what he pleases. And he does. That upsets people. You you see the mockery in movies. You hear the mockery on the news. 
If there is a God who is sovereign or in control of all things, how can he allow such things to happen on earth? How can he allow tsunamis and deaths and things like that? What kind of loving God would do such things? But it's not only in the world. It's in the church as well. Listen to all of you who says that. When you create your own universe, out of things that don't exist, then you can question God and then you can have control over your own life. Until the day you are under his roof. Until that day where you are able to take nothing, absolutely nothing, and make everything from that, you have no say. He gave life to you, and therefore he has absolute right over you. End of discussion. We know this to be true. Why? Just look at your own homes. Look at your own homes. You may not have a child, but you may have an animal. Or you have animals that sit in, on your lawn. What do you do? When they come into your territory, get out. Why? Because I am sovereign in this house. Or when a kid wants to do his own thing, what do you do? No, because this is my house, my rules. We know that there is an idea of being in control and having people under you. We know that that is true, but we reject that idea when it comes to God. Job 38. How does God demonstrate his absolute control over the animal kingdom? Look at verse 39. I love this. How do we get here? Well, Job is starting to murmur. He's starting to question. And at this point, God is starting to ask the questions. Directed at Job. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Pause. Think about that. Who's doing the hunting? Read it again. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Who's doing the hunting? Not the lion. You know what this literally means? Can you provide the prey for the lion? That means that this lion who lies under the brushes or under the tree, they are lazy animals. They lie around. They love lying on the rocks sometimes. They just lie around. The men are worse than the, the lady lions. They, they laze around until the woman catches the food. Amen, right men? That's how it's supposed to be. And then the man gets the first right to the meal. God asks Job, can you do that? Can you provide for the lions? But notice the next line. Or satisfy the appetites of young lions. They have to eat five times a day. Five meals every 24 hours. These young lions at, the, at 18 months, they are let free. Dad says, get out. Actually, mom says, get out. 18 months, no longer you under my control. Go. And these dumb young males are learning how to hunt. But notice what they do. When they crouch in their dens and they lie in wait in their thicket, 
That's how they hunt. I'm going to wait for the prey to come past. And when I see it, then I'm going to go for it. Here's what God is saying. Do you know who brings that prey to the lion? Can you do that, Job? No, but I do. I know that they're lazy. They're lying in the shade. They're waiting for a better day because if, they, if I don't provide for them, these young males are going to die. And so I bring a little weakling across their path. Or I bring a pride of, what are those McDonald's animals? Impalas. There's millions of impalas, so there's no loss. And so God brings his impalas, comes running past them, and there's one who's just a little bit slower than Joe. And God says, that one. And he's the happiest lion ever. God provides. Look what it says next in verse 41. Who provides for the raven its prey? This language here is pretty strong. Who causes or sets up, fixes or directs the prey of the raven? Do you get that? The raven is considered to be one of the smartest birds in the world. It has um, computing capacity. It can figure out things, problem solutions. What we did when we did um, uh, uh, troubleshooting, when we built computers. Uh, you have to troubleshoot to see which things don't connect properly. Otherwise, your computer doesn't boot up. This raven, he's smart. But notice what it says about it. Verse 41, who provides, literally, a trap for the prey of the raven? Who corners the prey of the raven? Not you, Job. I do. He may be smart, but I give him his meal. Why? Look at the next line. When its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food. Isn't that beautiful? I hear the cries of raven chicks. What are they called? Raven heads? Maybe if we were in the cave flat, it would be raven cheese, right? <laughs> Let's call it raven cheese. God not only hears their cry for help, but knows what they need at what time and provides the prey to mom. Here's a meal for your kids. That is absolute control over every detail of the life of a raven. That is beautiful. I don't know about you, that gives me goosebumps. The, it gives you a fresh meaning when Jesus says, quote, Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap. Yet your heavenly Father, what? Feeds them. Jesus knew something about what God does in nature. Every bird is provided for by God. Why do we have such verses in the Bible? If your heavenly father cares so much about a little insignificant raven or bird that does not matter to you, how much more will he care for you? Isn't that the argument that Jesus makes? If you look at nature and you see how God cares for birds, then why do you worry? Surely, surely he will care for his people, and he does. That's the point that God is making 
to Job. Look at the animal world, Job. Come on. You see it. You see what I do. And you're still questioning me? Through every step, Job, I have never abandoned you. I have never given you over to being overwhelmed by grief or the devil. Think about that. Chapter 1, God says to the devil, have you seen my servant Job? The devil missed him. He was hanging around looking for somebody to, to, to bug. And God says, hey, 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 listen here. You missed this guy. Did you check him out yet? The devil says, nah, Job, nah. I wouldn't worry with him. He's a weakling. God says, no, go. See what he does. God allowed, by decree, the devil to be involved in Job's life to a certain degree. Where are all those uh, demon chases now? God sometimes allows the enemy to get involved in our life. The fact that God is in control of every bird and every animal should comfort our hearts. But somehow it does it. Let me reinforce your conviction that God is in control. This chapter 9, sorry, chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the carving of the does? No. Can you number the months that they fulfill? Can you know the fullness of their days, in other words? Do you know when they will die? No, you don't. I do, is what God is saying. Every detail of an animal's life is vividly clear before God. Every animal. Imagine that. That little hamster that wakes you up at 2 o'clock in the morning. We have a family, I won't mention their names, who gave us a hamster. I'm so sorry that I said yes. Ever wonder why an ostrich is so dumb? Ever wonder? I, I was intrigued by this. <laughs> I'm trying to see where do I have this? Verse 13. Look at verse 13. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth. And lets them be warmed on the ground. What do every other bird do? Put them in a nest and sit on it. You know what the ostrich does? Well, this sun, let it do my job. I'll just leave it out in the, in the sun. Well, why? Forgetting that, verse 15, a foot may crush them and that a wild beast may trample them. doesn't think about stuff like that. Other birds do, but not this bird. She, the ostrich, deals cruelly with the young. Look at this ugly duckling. I don't want this thing, and so she kills it. As if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. I found that interesting, why God includes that. 
You know that an ostrich has little fear of anything? There's not a lot of things that scares it. Look at the next line. Because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at her horse and, her, and his rider. You know what it's saying is? She sees a horse and a rider. And that day, when you see a horse and a rider, it's either a military or it's a hunter. They're going out for food and she sees it. She laughs and says, what is this thing? I don't know what it is, but I'm going for it. I'm strong enough. I don't know what it is. I'm going for it. I read, my wife saw yesterday, I read some of the dumbest animals on, um, on the planet. You know what is number one? An ostrich. I'm not lying to you. The list of the dumbest animals in the world, the ostrich tops it all. Because, and I don't know if this is true, but they say so, because when it sees danger, it closes its eyes. Uh, we were told that it puts its head in the ground, but apparently that's not true. It closes its eyes because it thinks if it closes its eyes, whatever's coming towards it, it's gone. It's amazing that they are still around. If evolution is true, these dumb animals should not be around at all. But God chose to preserve it. Why? To teach us a lesson that even these dumb things that I've, I've withdrawn wisdom and understanding from, that's why they are so dumb. God didn't give any smarts to an ostrich. You know when somebody says that you have a bird brain, it's not a compliment. <laughs> you are acting like a nitwit, in other words. You are two sandwiches short of a picnic. That's the ostrich. You'll get that later. So God doesn't give wisdom to them. Why does he mention this? Because in the midst of a growing society where people need food, what are they going to hunt? The things that are easy to hunt. Ostriches should have been wiped out. But God says, even this dumb animal, I preserve. That shows that God cares about the things that he didn't give smarts to. There are some people who are not the smartest on earth. But even them, God cares about. Not only so. Not only does he care for these animals, and not only does he provide food for them, but he provides understanding and direction for animals. Look at verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk saw why do they go high? To see a better picture of their prey. They have the best eyes. Spreads his wings toward the south. Probably from where the wind comes from, so you would have a better angle of attack. Interesting. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest? On high? Do you do that? Do you give it its intelligence to hide its young from the ability of other animals to get to? Who does that? I do. On the rocks he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from afar. 
God not only gives them the height, but the ability to see their prey from afar. Why? Because he put it there. <laughs> That's God's sovereignty over his creatures. Why does this book that reveals the nature of God I have a chapter in about God's control over animals to show Job how much he cares for his life? Job gets it. Look at chapter 40. And Yahweh said to Job, Shall the fault finder, this is Job, contend with the Almighty? Who, he who argues with God, let him answer. If you haven't answered Job, come, answer. And Job answers Yahweh and says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That is to say, Lord, I'm shutting up. I said enough. I don't have an answer for you. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. How do we get to this situation? Well, in chapter 34, Job is in a bit of a crisis. He's got a bit of an emotional and mental breakdown and he starts to question God. He starts to ask, why on earth would God allow certain things like this to happen? Does not the unrighteous enter calamity? Does not the wicked die because of God's punishment? In other words, why am I going through this? God takes that personally. You question me. So you have chapter 38 to 40 where God questions Job and he says, Lord, I don't want to answer. I can't answer. No more. Verse 6, and Yahweh answers Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress up for action like a man. In other words, no, 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 no. You brought this on yourself. So answer me. I will question you and you will make it known to me. So you questioned me. You're the one who I have sovereign control over, whose life I've held in my hand and protected through all of these things. And you question me. God reveals to him by means of his demonstration that he controls the animal world very specifically, very particularly, that if that is the case for the animal world, Job, then what am I not doing for you? Can you not see it? If that is my control over those animals, those beasts, how much more am I not in control of your life? That is the point. And so Job recognizes that. He shuts his mouth and says, Lord, I get it. I get it. Job repents in chapter 42. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know you can do all things. How did he get to that? By God showing him what he does in nature amongst created creaturely things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 5. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I get it now. I get it. If you love the animal world That much, you love me more. And even if your love includes my hardship, suffering, and affliction, I know that you still love me. I get it now. My eyes now see it. 
Beloved, that is how we ought to respond to God's sovereignty in the midst of affliction. Not blame God, not question God, not say, I don't want this, but look at how He controls the animal world and be confirmed in your faith that if He's in that control of the animal world, how much more is He not controlling, in control of your life? God showed Job His sovereign power over His creatures. And Job gets it. Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament. God is absolutely in control of the animals, and therefore, if he's in control of the animals, he's also in control of man. How can we figure from that that if God is in such control of the details of animal lives that he's lost control of the details of human life? If it is true then, if it is true that God is in absolute control over every aspect of the animal world, he will even more so be in control of the lives of his people. If God has not withdrawn his hand from the lives of animals, he will not withdraw his hand from the lives of people. No believer will ever say that God is unloving by looking at the animal world. A lion chases a deer, kills it, because God provided a deer. And we will say, that's God's divine, willing, loving provision. Yet death is included in that. We marvel at his care and control over the nature, uh, over nature and beasts. We love to see that, at least I do. But why is it different when it comes to mankind? Because we think that our will trumps God's will. The reason is we crave control. We crave the control that is only God's to have. God is in absolute control fulfilling his purpose, even if that purpose temporarily includes suffering. This should be our response. Yes, Lord, I see it now. You possess all knowledge, all wisdom, all power. Now my eyes see that you have absolute control over my life and I submit. But that's not what we say. Here's what common questions come from this discussion. While some would say amen to that, the tension is not God's ability to have control over the animal kingdom, but am I free? That's the tension. That's the question. If God is sovereign, in what sense can we speak of human choice and human will? The answer to this is not reducing God to human freedom, but or placing God below human choices. But... Allowing God to be God. That's the answer. This is what God shows Job. Allow me to be who I am. Let me do what I do because I do it best. God's sovereignty is manifest in his control and authority over his creatures. I think that is absolutely clear from scripture. But how does it relate to man? What about man? God's sovereignty is manifest, secondly, in his control and authority 
over mankind. If he does it over the beast, he will do it over man. God is sovereign over people. This aspect of sovereignty is most hated by man. We will gladly agree when it comes to animals, but when it comes to this aspect, we detest the idea. Charles Spurgeon rightly says, quote, There is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football, that is to kick it around, as the great stupendous but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite God. Listen to this. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. Isn't that true? They allow him to be in his workshop, to fashion worlds and to make stars. Oh, sure, let God do that. They will allow him to be in his almanary, to dispense his arms and bestow his bounties. Oh, we will receive that. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, and, uh, or light and lamps of heaven, or rule over the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends to his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creature as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed at and execrated. And then it is that men turn to deaf ear to us, turn a deaf ear to us. For God is on his throne, is not a God that they love, end quote. That is absolutely true. The minute we speak about the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we start to cringe. The minute we speak about God's sovereignty over people's lives, it's not comfortable. There are four elements. Yeah. I have seven minutes. Give me an opportunity. I will finish this. There are four elements that arise from this reality. First of all, God determines the outcome. The general principle here is that God is the one who not only knows how it's going to turn out, but causes the things that the way that they turn out. I know that this is hard to grasp, but hopefully by the end of the sermon you will see this. So hang in there. What we need to see here is that in simple human, acti- simple human activities, God is working to produce his intended outcome. Listen to Proverbs, you can turn there, 69. The heart of man plans his way or his own way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. Is that clear? I don't think it can be any clearer. Let me add a little bit more clarity if I can. The heart of man, the inner conscious, the mind, the desire of man thinks, is the word plans, makes a judgment that can be either good or evil. He decides his way. It's the same word as we find in, let me see, I think it's in verse 30. Whoever winks, his eyes, plans that his things, makes judgment, dishonest things. It's the same word, but yet it's for evil, and in verse 9 it's for good. And the good relates to verse 1. But the Lord, take note of this word, establishes, is, prepares, or fixes his steps. 
Now, this may not be clear in the English translation, but it has to do with stability. You may plan the course of life, but the Lord provides a stable path. The Lord provides the stability so that you are not moved. He provides a foundation that you cannot fall from. You may make bad choices, but God still provides stability. He fixes your feet. There's a German proverb that says, Der Mensch denkt und Gott lenkt. I know you Germans perfectly understand what I've just said because I just didn't speak German, I was speaking tongues. <laughs> Which is equal to man proposes but God disposes. That's what this is talking about. God is the one who decrees the outcome. You plan all you want and he allows you to do that. You can make every decision, whether it's good or bad, doesn't matter. The outcome is determined by God. That blows my mind. Because every eventuality, whether you, like Piper, walk up to somebody and says, I dropped this pen. What if you didn't drop it? Would God have still accomplished his will? Yes. Whether you dropped it or not, doesn't matter. His will is still accomplished because ultimately the outcome is determined by God. So whatever you choose, the outcome is God's. Look at chapter 16, verse uh, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. I, I do get that this is hard to comprehend. It's hard to understand. The idea here of casting of lots was a way to determine an answer. If you wanted to know, it's related to the umum and the thumum <laughs> um, in the Old Testament. It's in the Bible. The priests used to carry these. We don't know if it was stones or bones. We don't know exactly what they looked like, but they, they were decision-making things. And they would throw it before the Lord, and he would provide the answer by means of these stones or whatever they were. Dice, I think, uh, one dictionary calls it. There were various things that were decided by means of that. The division of land uh, was the, decided by that. The, the a selection of certain residents uh, to Jerusalem post-exilic was determined by that. Even remember when um, Judas passed away or he killed himself, committed suicide. The next, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Matthias, who replaced him, was chosen by what? Lot, casting lots. So casting lots was a normal Jewish practice. It did take place in the pagan uh, context as well. And what they understood by this was their decision was God's outcome. How did they get to their decision? Because God determined how the dice, or whatever you would call it, the lot, would fall. So God determines the outcome, and so he provides a decision. That's the meaning here. That every judgment, every decision is from Yahweh. It's, it's hard to think through this without getting a bit stuck up on, on certain things. So how do you choose your wife? Well, I threw some bones. <laughs> and, well, it fell on, on my wife. And so, yeah, no, no, please. That's not how we make decisions, Right? The only place you found in the New Testament was that occasion, and it was generally a Jewish practice. Uh, any Jews here? I didn't think so. So, no, we don't throw bones. 
There are people in, our, in, our, in South Africa that throw bones. We don't. So please, I don't want to hear that, well, I bought this house. I don't have money, but I bought this house because the bones fell this way. No. God not only knows how things will turn out, but he causes the outcome. Here's an illustration. Think of a child who has his own world. He has his own world, right? He gets to decide what time he wakes up, or unless you put an alarm up for him. He gets to decide what kind of porridge he has, or maybe you put some porridge out for him. Or I don't know how you guys do porridge. We, we taught our kids to make their own breakfast. They are responsible for their own action. If they break the plate, they are responsible for that. But you gave them authority, right? Is the child free? Mm, yes. <laughs> he's free. No, he's not free. It's a yes, no, like Peter said this morning. Free to do what he's allowed to do. But he's not absolutely free. Does she always obey the rules? Are you she, very specifically? <laughs> Does she always obey the rules? Hilton. No, she doesn't, right? If you've got a female dog, you know that is true. <laughs> and you Shanta would agree with that. No child is absolutely free. But we know that they are free to make a choice. We may not. We have a saying in our home. If we want your opinion, we'll provide it to you. The child is accountable for every decision. Their freedom is granted by the parents, yet limited by the parents and judged by the parents. Are they free? Yes. No. That is us. My mom used to say, if you're under my roof, my roof you obey my rules. Even as an adult, when you turn 20, I remember my brothers, much older than I, who disobeyed the curfew. We had curfews, which was a good thing. I think it was 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, similar to what we have now. <laughs> we had curfews, and uh, the bigger boys decided to disobey that. She locked them out. They slept outside, <laughs> and they tried to get through the window. She closed the window. My house, my rules. Everything in this house belongs to me, the window and the door. You want to come in, you obey my rules. This is us. We are under God's roof because this whole universe belongs to him. Like I said, if you want to create your own universe, by all means, go ahead. If you want to be free, go. Make it. You don't get to, to, to complain when you are under his roof. He's the sovereign. He alone has the right, the authority to set the boundaries. Your freedom exists, but you're under his house. You don't get to choose your gender because he's established that. You don't get to define marriage because he's established that. You don't get to draw the line in the sand to say, this is what the church can do and this is what the church cannot do because that is not your realm of control. That is God's. He's provided your freedom, but your freedom is never independent of his absolute rule over you. That is what it means to have God's sovereignty and human accountability. God determines the rise and fall of nations. I'll just mention this and move on. 
If he's in control of Israel, because that's his people, he still is his people today, then he has to be in control of every nation. Understand this in the Old Testament. When God placed the nation of Israel in a small strip of land along the coast, there were greater nations around him. In fact, he says to them that I didn't choose you because you were great. You were the smallest in number. You were not loved because of what you became. I loved you because I loved you. But in order for God to maintain the ability for Israel to remain as a nation, every other nation around it had to be under his control because the minute he lifted his hands from Israel, he had to lift his hand from the nations because the nations only invaded Israel by God's doing. Imagine in Exodus chapter 34, 16, God says, let all the, uh, the men from, I think it's 18 upwards, I stand under the correction, I think it's 18 upwards. All the men go up to Jerusalem. All the men. Which means the women and the children are left unaccompanied. Consider that. Every one of them exposed in the middle of nations that want to overrun it. You know what God says? I blind their eyes. I keep them busy. They don't see it. They won't worry with you. Why? Because I did that. God has to keep control over every other nation if he has control over Israel. Daniel chapter 2, you can reference verse 20 to 21, Psalm 47. He has divine authority over the nations. Thirdly, God determines life and death and everything in between. My time is far gone. 1 Samuel chapter 2, turn there. beautiful expression of God's sovereignty by a woman named, in the Hebrew it's Hana, I will not say that because it may disturb some of your calm, but it's Hannah in, in the English translation. Notice what she says in verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in Yahweh, my horn is exalted in Yahweh, in the Lord, yeah, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. What did God give her? A child, a son. What is she exalting in? God's redemption. God's salvation. And then she goes through this section, speaking about God's ability to reverse the current circumstances of those who are brought low. It's a song. She sings to the Lord. Look at verse 6. Yahweh kills and brings to life. That is strong words. Who has authority to bring to life and to take life? My God. My God has right over it to bring down to Sheol and raise up. There's resurrection theology in that. Consider that. The Lord Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He's the one who gives you riches. And he's the one who causes you to be in poverty. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That is deep theology because she's not just talking about her circumstance now. She's talking about God's absolute control over all things and over all people. How do I know that? 
Mary, a thousand years later, picks up this song and she sings it in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah saying that Yahweh has provided salvation and He's the one that provides poverty and riches. He's the one who raises up the poor. Why does she quote this song? Why does Mary sing this song? Because this song demonstrates the absolute authority and control of God over everything including human decisions. And they know that this is a sign that God has not abandoned his covenant. She knows that. I will provide a savior. And he does. I don't have the time to go into all the connections here, but that's a tremendous connection here. God is in absolute control of outcomes. What is the most famous verse in Genesis chapter 50 regarding Joseph? We all know it. What you have intended for what? Evil. God. You know what that word is there, intended? Look it up. It's planned. What God, what, what you planned for evil, God planned for good. Think about that. Two events. The heart of it was an evil decision. Let's kill our brother. No, 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 no. Let's throw him in the pit. No, no, let, let's sell him. That's evil. It's wickedness. Now, Joseph didn't help. He did pride himself as being better than them. He didn't help his case. And his father didn't help by giving him a coat of many colors. So, yeah, both of them are to blame for the way that the other 11 treated Joseph. Poor Joseph. It doesn't matter. There was an evil choice there. Let's take him out. Your, your plan was wicked. But what does that plan fit into? God's plan. What was God's plan for that event, that evil event, to produce what? Good. What was the good? That Jacob and his family and therefore Israel would be saved from destruction, from being wiped out from the face of the earth by means of a famine. But let's think about this. So Joseph is where? In Egypt. Joseph sends for Jacob to come to Egypt. And they are saved, right? In the story. No. What happens in Egypt? Joseph dies. So does Pharaoh. Israel becomes imprisoned. Slaves. How did that happen? Well, God brought them there. Why? Why would God do something like that? Because that's not the end of the story. You see, the problem is that we see circumstances and events in small bits. We only see the outcome for now. Joseph only saw the outcome then and there. He only saw the liberation and the freedom and the salvation of his father and his family. That's all he could see. That's not God's plan though. That was part of it, but that's not the whole plan. Because through that, Israel became enslaved in Egypt. And through that, God demonstrates his power in Egypt to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and to the people in Israel that he's the most powerful being that ever existed. So God puts on display by means of that small event who he is. I can go on and on and on. The point is this. We don't see the big picture. You can trace it right from Genesis to Revelation. God's decree, God's plan is unfolding. And he's the one who's in control of every detail of it. All of history works out to a singular 
plan that God has. I said a few weeks ago, there's one plan, and it is God's plan A. There is no plan B. When the fall happened, it was still plan A. When tragedy happens, it is still plan A. When hearts of affliction and tribulation and, and persecution comes, it is still plan A. Why? Because God has one decree. It's singular. One decree. And he accomplishes that decree by means of all of history. Everything fits into that one plan. Doesn't matter what it is, it fits into his plan. I have one more thing to, to deal with, but I can't. Uh, let me end on this. God determines the outcome which is good for his people. Romans 8. We know this verse, right? Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for the good to those who love him. Is it for everybody? No. To those who love him, God has determined good. What is it? Read on. Verse 29. For those who we predestined. If for new, why? To be conformed to his son. But that's not the end. What is the end? Those whom he called, he predestined, he for new, to what end? So that they may be glorified. That's the end. The ultimate end of all your sufferings, of all your afflictions, of all your pain, of every detail in your life is to show that God will magnify his glory in your life through Jesus Christ. So then everything that happens in your life is for your good. doesn't matter what it is, whether it's COVID or cancer, it is for your good. We don't understand that. We don't have to understand the totality of that. But God works everything for the ultimate good. And I'm going to end on that. Father, there is no attribute that is more comforting to the child of God than your absolute sovereignty. You have ordained all things and you are in control of all things. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to not only believe this, but to respond rightly to it. What a weight to know that you care so much for the animal world. How much more do you not care for us? Lord, bring clarity, bring understanding, and bring comfort, especially during this time. We give thanks to you for your name. Amen.